Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can find more information about us at uschess.org, where you can become a member by clicking on the join button, and you can donate to our cause by clicking on the donate button. Thank you to USCF Sales for sponsoring this podcast. At the end of this recording, you can hear how you can win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's pod. It is a pleasure to introduce David McAnulty to the February edition of One Move at a Time. David has been teaching chess to adults and children for more than a quarter century and has been one of the most impactful scholastic chess coaches in the USA over that period. Working in Community Elementary School 70, where he taught from 1991 to 2000 in the South Bronx, his team became one of the top national scholastic teams. These achievements are made all the more remarkable by the fact that the school was located in the poorest congressional district in the country, and its children came from two of the highest crime precincts in the Bronx. This inspired the made-for-TV movie Knights of the South Bronx. Later, David became the first full-time New York City public school teacher to teach chess as an academic subject. David has given lectures across the U.S. and around the world on chess-related topics. Since 2003, he has been chess coach at the Dalton School in New York City, and over that time, Dalton students and chess teams have won scores of state and national championships across all scholastic age groups. He's been featured on CBS and CNN, and in many newspaper and magazine articles. He won the prestigious Chess Educator of the Year Award from the University of Texas at Dallas in 2007, and he has been honored by U.S. Chess with the Career Achievement and Scholastic Service Awards. He also received the Lives That Make a Difference Award from A&E Television. He's the author of several books, including How to Beat Your Kids at Chess. David McAnulty, welcome to the One Move at a Time podcast. Well, thank you. So, you know, that's a very lengthy resume. What occupies your most of your chess time now? Uh, Right now, it's mostly just teaching and preparing to teach and getting kids ready for tournaments and analyzing games at tournaments. And do you do all your teaching at the Dalton School or do you also have private students? Yes. No, I, I work strictly at the Dalton School. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you get started in chess? Yes, that's the silliest story ever. One day, Bruce Pandolfini came to me and said that he needed someone to teach a class for him. And I was in real estate at the time. And I said that he was crazy. All of his guys who were doing that were chess masters. And I was just somebody who liked to play chess. But he twisted my arm and convinced me to do it. And I really loved it. It was great fun. Then he asked me to do it again a little later. And I jumped at the chance. And then I didn't really enjoy my job in real estate. And uh, so then he asked me to come work for his organization, which at the time was um, the American Chess Foundation's Manhattan Chess Club School which later morphed into chess in the schools. So that was really how I got my start, completely by accident. Did you learn how to play chess as a child, or were you an adult starter? No, my father taught me and my brother when I was five and my brother was six. But uh, then, as I like to say, he was sort of like the god of the deists. He wound the watch and walked away. (laughs) Uh, So that sort of left us to do a lot of uh, ridiculous exploration on our own. And we played many, many absolutely foolish 
crazy games. Now, it, it really jumps out at me that you had all the success at this um, underprivileged school in the South Bronx. Yes. And now you're teaching at a very privileged location with the Dalton School, uh, which yes. I, uh, it is a private school, correct? Yes, it is. Um, I, I was, I'm, I'm imagining that there are some great differences, but I suspect that if I ask you the question about how you reach the kids, that you may tell me that they're pretty much the same at a at a, at a base level. So why don't you speak to that? Well, they absolutely are. Um, children anywhere can be very successful with the game of chess. That's one of the great beauties of it. It is truly a great leveler. Uh, the big difference between teaching here at Dalton and teaching in the Bronx, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, that was the poorest congressional district in the country and the two highest crime precincts in the Bronx. Um, nobody comes to Dalton tired, hungry, or angry as a lifestyle. Um, in the Bronx, there's just a lot of pain. It's it's a really terrible thing, and it just breaks my heart to um, to realize that that's an ongoing problem. It's been going on way before it was going on way before I ever started there. It's continuing in the Bronx right now, and in dozens and hundreds of other communities in this country. Um, and the children there are just terribly underserved um, with our current systems for education and it drives me crazy in preparation for this interview i i watched the cbs sunday morning interview that was held with uh with you when you were still an active teacher at uh, the bronx school and yeah, to, to the point you just mentioned uh more than one of the kids mentioned that you became a father figure to them that that's very sobering uh it was in fact when i saw that uh when they released the the uh, TV show, I was quite surprised by that. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. It's quite humbling. Uh, yeah, those kids, you know, they're beautiful children. I mean, they're just absolutely wonderful kids, and we should do better by them. This program at the school in the Bronx, it led to you being um, hired by that principal as uh, a full-time chess teacher. for for, And you were the first one in the New York City school system to, to do this. Uh, I, I There's got to be a story behind this. What uh, Was there pushback? Did people tell her she was crazy to do this, that we didn't have the resources? <laughs> no. Um, the movie actually changed a few things from the actual history. There was an ongoing program at the school uh, run by a man named Mark Singer, who is the assistant principal, and he's a wonderful guy. Um, so there was already a little bit of a nascent chess program at the school. So when I was brought in, it was really to kick it upstairs into the more professional level. Um, and Sylvia Simon, the principal, is one of God's gifts to education. In fact, if she were still there, I would still be there. She was just absolutely fabulous. And her vision was that chess would help the children with their academic skills what surprised both of us was that it didn't just help with their academic skills, but it helped with their social skills more than anything else. They learned how to trust their brains and to believe in their own judgment. And, um, you know, today the proof is uh, I look at those kids now who are in their late 20s and early 30s, and one of them has an MBA from the University of Chicago. Uh, several have engineering degrees. Uh, it's it's just absolutely awesome to look at what the adults that those children have turned into. I mean, they're they're just magnificent. So when you say that you were kind of professionalizing it, did 
Did you have to develop the curriculum, uh, or did you have something that you were able to get from another school system off the shelf? Oh no, I had to. I had to invent everything. Um, in fact, when I first started, I realized that chess teaching was really sort of a fly by the skin of your nose kind of thing. Um, it hadn't really been organized the way uh, of the way, for example, my music training had been. I was brought up by a couple of musicians, and I was a musician earlier in my life. And music training is very, very clarified, very codified, very organized, very rational, very step-by-step. -step. And so what I did when I went to the Bronx was I quickly discovered that the things that I thought I should do were completely wrong. Um, I started out by thinking, okay, this is what they need to know, so this is what I will teach them. And that was completely the wrong idea. I had to start where they were. Um, astonishingly, um, children in the second grade didn't have a working definition of the word corner. Um, so I had to begin where they were, not where I thought they should be learning. So I had to, I had to completely redo all of my thinking about chess and education and how people learn. So I spent my first year just immersing myself in the psychology of learning and in the processes of doing things step by step. And I was greatly aided by my mentor at the school, a man named Eric Whitney, who really guided me through the educational process. He was a, an absolutely amazing, influential person in my life. I want to jump back to something you just said. I, I'm not sure I understood. When you said they didn't have a working knowledge of the word corner. You mean they didn't literally did not understand the definition of the word? That is correct, yes. Um, and I found this out when I was teaching the second grade class, and I thought I taught them how all the pieces move. And now we're going to set up the demonstration board, and I hold up a rook, and I ask them, what piece this is, and they're all excited. They tell me it's a rook and it's worth five points. And I said, okay, the rook goes in the corner of the board. Who can come up and put the rook in the corner? All of a sudden, that very enthusiastic class went dead silent. Nobody said a word. And it took me about five minutes of pulling teeth before one little girl asked me if a corner wasn't like a store. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, oh my God, the corner store, of course. So I went to the blackboard. We had blackboards in those days, not smartboards. And I drew an intersection and drew a little store on the corner. And I said, this is the corner store. It's called the corner store because it's on the corner. This is what a corner is. All of a sudden, they learned something new. And so did I. That was when I learned that I've got to stop and go back and redo my vocabulary and teach them what is a straight line? What happens when two straight lines come together, vertical and horizontal, and you get a right angle, and you get four of those and four equal straight lines, and you get a square, and you get a row of squares, and you can start alternating colors, and you have a pattern. And that was how I evolved my chess teaching, was by starting where they were. You know, that's fascinating to me about assumptions, because, you know, I, as a kid, I spent my first five years in the Bronx, and, to, you know, when I think about it, I my dominant image of living in the city at that time are corners and edges and things. So you, sure. you would just assume oh, yeah. that that was a, a natural word, but Absolutely. that's why assumptions are so problematical. Yes. But it also shows something else. And that was that the parents didn't do puzzles with the kids, those jigsaw puzzles. The first piece that you put in is the corner. Ah, uh -huh. So the, you know, one of the problems with these high poverty areas is that the children don't have access to the same learning that middle class and upper class, upper class kids, upper financially 
oriented kids get. Um, there was a devastating study done about how much children are read to. And they found that if you're in poverty, on average, you're read to about 25 hours by the time you enter kindergarten. If you're above the poverty line, and it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or a millionaire or just simply middle class, um, the average was 2,500 hours by the time they enter kindergarten. Now, that discrepancy is just an unbelievable thing to have to overcome. So when the children in a poverty area enter school, they're just simply not as well prepared. It's not their fault. It's not their parents' fault. Everybody's busy and you know under tremendous stress. But those children come into school not prepared to learn. I mean, they've just had so many fewer times to do the neurological processing of language. When you're teaching at Dalton versus teaching in the Bronx, that, that makes me, well, not the Bronx, but at this specific school, uh, CES 70, that makes me think that maybe where you're starting at lesson A in the Bronx, you might be able to start at lesson D in, in at Dalton. Is, is that a fair assumption or not? Uh, oh, completely. Um, in fact, you can almost start at M. <laughs> uh, the kids here, I mean, you know, some of them have, have traveled to Europe before they were four years old. Um, if I mention hieroglyphics, nearly everybody in the class is going to know that I'm talking about Egypt. You know, it's, it's a totally different set of um, experiences that the kids bring to the table when they walk in the door at Dalton than when you walk in the door at a school in a high poverty area. Well, now I guess I have to, uh, after we're off this pod recording, I'll have to give my parents grief for having sent me to school in the Bronx and not at to Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I frequently say if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I want to come back as a Dalton student. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but, you know, I also really want to, want to stress that the kids in those high poverty areas, they are absolutely reachable if we will just give the resources to them. I mean, they're wonderful. Again, I encourage our listeners to to look up online. It's readily available, the CBS Sunday Morning interview with you, because what you just said, those, those kids, uh, you would never know they were from a, uh, a district that you described because they were so sweet, so intelligent, uh, and so eager to learn and so excited by chess. Yeah, yeah. And we can do that in every school in the country if we devote the resources to it. And that is something that's very much on the radar of U.S. Chess now with our 501c3 educational mission that we are pushing and, and the purpose of, this pod, purpose of this podcast as well. Wonderful. So how, how does chess affect the emotional development of a child? Have, have you ever seen competition have a negative effect on a kid? Uh, yes. Uh, it's very rare. I've seen a couple of kids in the 28 years or so that I've been doing this, literally only two who found the stress of the tournament too much to bear. Actually, one of the stories is quite funny. We were at the national tournament. He played two games and said, I can't do this anymore. And I said, that's fine. It's okay. Relax. Just enjoy yourself. And the following year, he said he wanted to play again. He went to the city tournament. He was the city champion in New York and never played again. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, there are a lot of times when the kids are crying at chess games and things like that, you know, and they're, they get very upset. But that is a fantastic learning experience for the children, because in the very safe environment of a chess tournament, they learn that 
failure is not a definition of who they are. It's just something they need to work on. And yes, the pain can be pretty awful when you've been expecting to win a game and you don't. Um, and you have this sort of Superman image of yourself or Superwoman image of yourself when you go in and then somebody pokes a needle in that particular balloon and you realize it wasn't true and it can be quite devastating. But it's a great learning experience and the pain is absolutely temporary. They'll get over it and they'll learn from it and they'll grow tremendously. So, you know, when you, when you can go through the stress of a scholastic tournament, by the time you're an adult, there's very little that's going to stress you. So you, you mentioned what, that one of your former students ended up become, reach, getting their MBA and, the, and these positive aspects that you just mentioned. What, what are some of the other benefits of scholastic chess that you have seen? Oh, wow. They just go across the board in virtually every area. The kids who play scholastic chess learn, I think they learn above all to trust their own judgment and to think for themselves and to take responsibility for their actions. You know, once, once you've got really good emotional control over things, you know, how you deal with adversity, because let's face it, every move is adversity. Once you learn how to do those emotional intelligence issues, once you learn how to handle those, there isn't really much that life can throw at you that you're not, that you're not prepared for. And I think scholastic chess is one of the best areas for that. I, you know, I was brought up as a musician. I did a lot of sports and I love those things. I think they're fantastic. And, you know, I encourage everybody to do them. Ceramics, dancing, art, all of these things are really terrific. But I've truly never seen anything that's as far reaching as what chess has done. And to the far-reaching point, I'll use that to segue into uh, the, the way I first heard about you uh, back in 2005 was was when the movie Knights of the South Bronx opened. Um, what what's the origin story of that movie? How did how did it come to be made? How did you first find out that a production company was interested in it? Uh, that's very interesting. Um, there was a CNN did a piece on us, and the reporter for that was a woman named Perry Peltz. And she was friends with this Hollywood producer named Diane Nevitoff. And Perry and Diane were having breakfast one day, and Diane was lamenting that she couldn't find a good story. And Perry said, oh, I've got a story for you. <laughs> and uh, so they invited me for a breakfast meeting, and I talked about what I had done with the children and how the children were doing now. And Diane got very enthusiastic about it. And um, hired this wonderful writer named Jamal Joseph, uh, who's a um, professor at Columbia, and who had been one of the Black Panthers as a young youngster. Uh, so he really, you know, he knew the scene really well. Um, and then I met with I met with Jamal many times as we went over ideas, um, and uh, you know, it just kept growing. And they got Ted Danson on board, and the next thing I knew, they called me up saying, "Hey, we're doing it." So past um, uh, speaking to the writer, did did you, once it was in production, did you serve as a consultant for the film at all? Yes, I did. Um, I worked with Ted extensively, um, and he is just an amazing, amazing man and artist. Um, he, was, he was an absolute delight. And the kids who were hired to play in the role, play the, the children, uh, were not chess players. They were actors. And so I had to teach them how to play chess. So... <laughs> Uh, it was kind of a busy time, 
been a lot of fun, I must say. Yeah, it's great that you you got somebody of the caliber of Ted Danson to, to, to play you. I, I've always been scared that if I ever did anything biopic worthy and they made a movie of me, that they would select mm. Danny DeVito to play me. <laughs> <laughs> You're way too tall. <laughs> Uh, so I, I imagine you know it, it's 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 almost a trope that for chess players that we we like to pick apart the chess in in movies. Yes. There must be some something in that movie in the final cut that absolutely drives you crazy. What is that? Uh, oh, that's a good question. You're evil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that drove me crazy was that they had to truncate eight years into one year, and um, so they took my fourth grade class in the movie and turn them into national champions in one year. Um, nobody can do that. Um, and uh, I had to work really hard to get across the idea that these kids really did work a lot. We put in hour after hour after hour of um, a really heavy, heavy study. You know, I bring in outside masters to work with the kids over the summers Um we would do every every time there was a, a school break i would bring in masters to work with the kids i mean we really worked like crazy because we had to catch up to kids like the people at dalton who are getting private lessons and none of the kids in the bronx needed private lessons so the thing that the thing that hurt me the most i think was the idea that you could turn a fourth grade class that never knew how to play chess into national champions in a year um but I understood, um, and Jamal, the writer, explained to me, he said, look, we're not going to tell your accurate historical story. That's not the truth we're going to tell, but we are going to tell a truth. And the truth we're going to tell is that somebody came to the South Bronx, taught these kids to believe in themselves through chess, and it worked. And that's really, the movie did do that, so I was really happy about it. Conversely, is that the favorite part of, your, of the movie for you, or is there something else that you, what do you uh, mean? that really stands out? It, so, what is just the favorite, your favorite uh, aspect of this movie? Um, uh, my favorite aspect of the movie is that they get, did get across that truth that um, chess was the vehicle for letting these kids really believe in themselves and succeed, and succeed they have. Do you have any idea if any of the kids that you, uh, kid actors that you taught to play chess with the film, if they stayed with chess? You know, I have no idea. I'm not in contact with them. I'm, I am so busy as a chess teacher. I can't keep up with Hollywood. <laughs> um, and a another initiative that, that you've done that I find, uh, and that I think our readers will find uh, compelling is your initiative in South Africa. Uh, we've written about that in Chess Life in the past. Right. Uh, tell the listeners about this. Uh, well, uh, right after the movie came out, a South African who lives in America named David Berman invited me to go down to South Africa. And I was just absolutely amazed at everything that I saw in South Africa. It is, uh, it's an incredibly complex situation down there. But um, the chess world is loaded with people who are remarkably talented. But they're so far away from the rest of the chess cultures of Europe and America and Asia uh, that it's very hard for them to uh, to really reach their level of, you know, for their potential to really be reached. Um, and so one of my ideas was to send Gerald Times, who was a master from Harlem, to go live down there for three years and show them what world-class coaching looks like. And... Uh, 
So for three years, he had a ball down there, uh, working with the kids, working with the coaches. Um, it was really wonderful. My only lament is that I didn't have enough money in the foundation to keep him there for longer or to do even more things because there, there's so much that needs to be done in places like, like South Africa. And I'm also just starting something in Haiti right now where I'm working with the chess players there to show them, you know, how, how chess is taught to work on them with their teaching skills. And my hope is that uh, they'll be able to reach a lot of the kids there. Uh, as you, I'm sure know, uh, Haiti is a very troubled nation. But again, like the South Bronx, it's just loaded with fantastic people. We just have to find ways to reach them. How far into the Haitian program are, are you? Are you doing this from, from the States? or I'm just beginning. I'm just beginning. Um, I went down there uh, last month, and I worked with about 25 teachers. And um, I was hoping to get back at the end of this month, but I haven't been able to organize that. Uh, so I'll, I'll spend a week on my spring break down there as well. This is through a, a personal foundation you have set up, is that correct? Um, I had a foundation that I set up for the South African venture, but then I let it sort of languish, so it's not really doing anything. Um, so right now, I'm footing the bill myself for the Haitian initiative. Are you looking for, for people to help with this in any way, to make donations or anything of that nature? I would love, <laughs> I would love to have the help. Uh, the problem is I don't have my foundation back running yet. I've got to, I've got to reorganize that. So there's no tax deductible place that people can give money at this point. I'm, I'm working on it though. I'll, I'll let you know. Okay. And so since I raised that point, I'll let listeners know if you are uh, interested in, in, in helping with any kind of chess initiatives, please go to uschess.org and click on our donate button. Uh, we are a 501c3. Uh, and it was, so it would be a tax deductible donation for you and help our educational mission ourselves. I think that's a great idea. The main purpose of this podcast, David, is is for people to get good ideas that they can use in their own communities uh, and, and schools. So if, if someone is starting from ground zero, uh, whether it be a rural or an urban area, what do you see as the first steps that they should take to get chess into their school or community? Uh, the first thing I think is that you must convince the um, leadership in the school that chess really does do what you and I know that it does. Um, if you don't have good administrative support, it's very hard to make it work. But I've seen several times where it was a parent who rattled the chains and got everybody going. And everybody, when people saw what was happening and they saw the results, then everybody gets on board. So I think the real thing is just go in there and push for what chess can do for the children. And if you've got administrative support um, and parental support, then everything should flow pretty well. You do need, of course, a chess professional to make it work. Um, a mommy or a daddy who knows how to play chess is probably not the best way to go. Are there any magic words that you find are 90% effective in bringing an administrator over to your side? Well, um, I, I haven't had that many conversations. Um, so I guess what you're really asking for is that thing that people call the elevator talk, um, where you can somehow encapsulate your idea in a conversation that would take place during an elevator ride of two minutes or so. Um, uh, that's that's really a difficult thing to say uh, 
because there's so many things that need to be said. You know, the chess helps children with their confidence. It helps them with their thinking processes. It's an amazing thing for their emotional intelligence. You know, we could go on and on and on with these things, but um, I, I don't really have a, a quick answer for that one right now. Fair enough. Um, and so, you know, looking forward to the, you know, the next five years, you know, you, you've got your Haitian initiative. Are there, are there any things you just have on the drawing board that you would, you would love to accomplish, you know, when you and I talk again in uh, five or 10 years? <laughs> well, I'm getting to be an older man. <laughs> <laughs> I may not be doing this in five years. <laughs> You know, you hear you hear people say age is just a number. Well, that's true, but the older you get, the bigger that number is. Yeah, I I, I understand. So, uh, well, David, this is this has really been a lot of fun. Well, thank you, uh, listeners. If you didn't get the sense already, David's one of the really good guys in the chess world, and I, I'm so happy that he was able to participate in in this February edition of One Move at a Time, David. Thank you for joining us. Good luck with your Haitian initiative. Good luck as Dalton continues to rack up national titles. And it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to One Move at a Time. Our theme music was composed by Alex King, a national master who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. For a chance to win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com, send your name and phone number to podcast at uschess.org and put One Move at a Time in the subject line. This month's winner is Alina Parizianu. Congratulations, Alina, and your gift certificate is waiting for you in your email's inbox. I hope that you have learned something new about how to build chess within your community. Join us next month for another Chess World personality and more good ideas. Make sure to listen to our other U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, and Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and is hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi. 